We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. Clay, good to have you with us today, a visitor. And uh, we are indeed uh, going to begin, as usual, with silent prayer. And uh, you think about what you want the Lord to hear, and you give it to Him as best you know. And as the Scripture tells us, uh, we ask amiss very often. But again, Christ and the Holy Spirit will take what we do pray about and take it to the Father and present a perfect prayer. So we can be very confident that we may indeed ask amiss, but we're going to get a perfect prayer to the Father, and He's going to give us a perfect plan. So with that said, let's go to the Lord in silent prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Ken, how about a song?
Thank you, Kenneth, and thank you all for that fine singing. <coughs> now we're going to set aside a moment for announcements. We will not have a Bible study or a prayer meeting on Wednesday until I can get over these shingles. And I'm working as hard as I can to get rid of them because it's certainly not pleasant. But appreciate your prayers for me. I know that that you've been doing that, and uh, I'm very grateful. So we will not have that Wednesday service, but we do have prayer uh, list over here to my left on the organ. And uh, feel free to get you one, and please use use it as we are told to pray for one another. All right, uh, so much for announcing. Sorry, Ken, how about another song? Hymn number 54, let's stand and sing the first, second, and fourth verses. Thank you again, Ken. Uh, I did want to mention the fact that we do need to pray for traveling grace for uh, certainly Wayne and Carolyn who have gone to Fort Worth to visit the grandkids and then also remember Kim and Judy. I assume they're back, but they went for the graduation of Alan and Vashti's number two who's graduating and I assume that means from high school. But I'm not sure of that, but we'll find out. So remember them in your prayers. Uh, 
uh, in tra- for traveling grace. Uh, now we're going to go to another aspect of worship called giving. As you know, in this church, we don't believe in tithing. We don't believe in sacrificial giving. We don't believe in bribing God. We just believe in finding, uh, find, uh, excuse me, uh, ascribing to the scripture. And again, the scripture is very clear about giving. And, uh, basically we chose to, uh, select a couple of passages that give us indication about how we ought to conduct it here in this church. Uh, if you have something to give, you are to give it if you can do it without attachment. In other words, you can give as a cheerful giver. Otherwise, don't give it. And then in addition to that, the scripture says that you can give in the privacy of your mind whether you have something to give or not. Uh, sometimes God blesses us. Sometimes God tests us. But if we're in a position where we don't have anything to give, but we want to give, the scripture says you gave so that's a grace matter, uh, because you want to. It's the want to that's important. So you can express the want to in private prayer. We're going to have a moment of private prayer. Again, silent prayer. Then I'm going to close and I'm going to ask God's blessing upon both the gift and the giver. So let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming together and worshiping. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon the gift and the giver, and that you would continue to guide us as we continue to worship. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have lesson plans over here for you, and they are unedited lesson plans. Uh, I'll be actually uh, speaking from a edited lesson plan, and we'll be putting on the internet and on our podcast the edited portion. But so you might want to make a note or two on your copy out there, because again, it is unedited, unedited because I just couldn't get around to it, uh, and I didn't uh, uh, get on it as fast as I could given my condition. Uh, but uh, if you've ever had shingles, you know what I'm talking about. Because This is my sixth week that I'm battling shingles. I've been to, let's see, one, two, three doctors. And all they say is, you know, it's tough. You know, you just got to suffer. So I am suffering. So anyway. Uh, now let's go ahead with our lesson. We're going to be in uh, the book of Titus in part Three, we've actually had part one, part two, obviously. Now we're into part three, and last week when the clock told 11.30, I had just completed the doctrine of the woman, and we're about to begin the, begin the role of the woman in the local church. And uh, we're going to do some review and, 
You use 1 John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary as we proceed throughout this lesson. Meaning if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because indeed I'm just going to present and God the Holy Spirit is going to teach. And to free Him up to teach, all you need to do is silently name your sin back to God. Alright, so let's go now to the role of the woman in the local church. Uh, a preface... Well, to begin our study, I want to provide an expanded translation of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, we have studied the book of 1 Timothy. We've studied the book of 2 Timothy. But I think the the uh, verses in 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 provide us a uh, a good preface to look at the role of the woman in the local church. Now remember, our lessons are on the internet, and you can go to westbankbiblechurch.com, and you also can go to podcasts, uh, and hear what we have, what we've done thus far in the book of Titus. Paul's writing the book of Titus, as you know, Titus is one of his soldiers, and, uh, uh, the year is somewhere between 65 and 68 AD, and he's on the, uh, he being, uh, Titus is on the island of Crete. And many years ago, since I've been here 40 years, uh, believe it or not, teaching, thanks to Wanda Cooper, but uh, who, when Bob Keck left, uh, she said, Jerry, would you be our pastor? And I said, well, sure. And uh, that, was a, that was a long time ago. But uh, uh, we did study it. But that, as again, being a long time ago, I'm sure you don't remember all the things that Paul wrote to Titus on the island of Crete. So to begin, the, we have, we're going to have the preface. First of all, it's reference. We're going to look at pastors. We're going to look at laymen. We're going to look at women and to see just exactly what 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 11 have to say. First, about pastors. It says, God appointed me a preacher, that's Paul, and an apostle for one purpose, to make clear that there is only one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the God-man Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all, his testimony having come in its proper time. Now, with reference to lay people, what, I'm, what I am telling you is the truth. I am not lying. I am a teacher of the true faith. Therefore, it is my desire that noble and honorable men in every place, wherever Christian congregations assemble, will lift up holy hands in prayer to God, meaning humility, without anger or skepticism now for the women likewise in every local assembly I want the women to dress themselves attractively in respectable and well arranged clothing such apparel to reflect their inner beauty a beauty characterized by modesty discretion and respect for God and his church and not a product of braided hair gold pearls or costly garments but it is suitable for the women to possess inner piety, spiritual maturity, a godly nature, and good works. It is important that the women learn in silence and proper respect and good manners. So pastors, laymen, and women, again setting the stage in Paul's letter to Timothy. All right, now let's go to an introduction as we go into the book of Titus. The Expositor's Commentary, which is a respected work, does an excellent job of setting the stage 
Paul is making a distinction between the role of the man and the role of the woman in the local church. Quoting now the word men in 1 Timothy 2.8 is preceded by the definite article in the Greek text. Paul means that the men, as opposed to the women, should conduct public worship. The word everywhere is more correctly in every place, that is, wherever Christian congregations assemble, not in every place indiscriminately. I will. It's not working, but that's all right. I'll, I'll reach you. Thank you for reminding me. I thought it was on. All right, First Timothy chapter two, verse eight. Can you hear me? All right. I will therefore that I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. All right. In verse nine, the subject changes from men to women, more particularly. Uh, Women assemble in a Christian congregation. Alright, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Alright, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. All right, we should not take the context beyond what is written. These passages apply to the setting of a local assembly. Therefore, what prohibitions are found in verses 9 must not be used of women outside local the local church. Thank you very much, Kenneth. All right, Kenneth Woos, not Kenneth Harrell. Kenneth Wiest, actually pronounced in the German, has the following to say of 1 Timothy 2.11. All right, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, says 2.11. Quoting Paul now. Paul is dealing with the context of women in the local assembly. The silence here has to do with maintaining quiet in the assembly and does not forbid a woman to take an active part in the works of the church in her own sphere and under limitations imposed upon her in the contextual passage. All right, before continuing, a caution is in order. Paul in verse 9 is not against braided hair, gold, pearls, or expensive clothing. It is clearly a principle that is being communicated. A lady with Bible doctrine in her soul will display ordered and attractive apparel. Such display will not be a product of outward appearance, but of metabolized doctrine in her soul. In other words, doctrine as she takes in the Word of God under the filling of the Spirit and thus is taught and thus becomes a product. All right, Kenneth Wiest has the following to say of the silence of women as described in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This admonition to the effect that women are to learn in silence with all subjection is made clear as to its meaning uh, by 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35 where women were disturbing the church service by asking their husbands questions, presumably about that which was being preached. The silence here in our First Timothy passage has to do with maintaining quiet in the assembly. All right, I'm going to read those two verses. Let your women keep silence in the churches 
for it is not permitted unto them to speak, for they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law, the Mosaic law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. All right, quoting now, the silence in 1 Timothy 2.11 does not, again, Kenneth Weiss, does not forbid women to take an active part in the work in the church in her own sphere and under the limitations imposed upon her in the contextual passage. All right, there are three considerations hidden from many who have exegeted 1 Corinthians 14, verses 30, or verse 35. And here we go. How many husbands can answer questions about the scriptures? How often do husbands and wives discuss the scriptures? How many husbands and wives recognize the importance of being occupied with Christ? So before we have, or excuse me, leave this passage, let me leave you with an Old Testament exhortation for the family. One we men would all have a need to take a look at and to apply Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. And these words which I command thee this day shall in thine heart, shall be in thine heart. And here are the words. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. All right, now let's see what we can learn from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It is a continuation of the sentence begun earlier, but it says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. All right, that's the KJV. Now let's take a look at the New International Version. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now let's exegete that verse, if you if you will. Uh, the phrase, first of all, but I suffer not. We begin with duh, which is a conjunction. Then you have ook, which is a, the strong of the negative adverbs. Then you have the verb epitrepo. So duh, ook, epitrepo is better translated, and do I not, and I do not permit or allow. Again, duh is that conjunction. Uh, it can be translated several ways, not the least of which is but or and or moreover. But uh, in this particular case, it's used as an adversative. In other words, contrary, but in contrast. All right, then you have that strong negative, ook. You have a may in the Greek, which is not as strong as ook. Ook is the strongest of the negative adverbs. All right, then you have the verb epitrepo. It's a first person singular, I, the antecedent being Paul. Uh, it's a present active indicative, present tense, he keeps on doing active voice, he produces the action of the verb, and the indicative mood, which is the mood of uh, reality. So duh, again, the adversative conjunction, and again, does use as a connected to continue the thought of verse 11. Verse 11, recall, was translated, it is important that the woman learn in silence with proper respect and good manners. Epitrepo, according to Zondervan, in his analytical Greek lexicon, says it means to give over, to leave, to the entire trust, management, or anyone to allow or to permit. It appears 18 times in the New Testament, 
where it is translated permit, permitted, allowed, suffer, suffered, or gave him leave. Alright, now let's look and see how it's used. Matthew 8, 21 and 22, you see how it's used in verse 21, which I've highlighted the word suffer. It says, And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So he had a disciple. He wanted to, the disciple to go with him and carry on his ministry. And he said, let's go. And he said, no, I have to go and bury, uh, as it tells you there, uh, my father. And of course, the Lord's answer is, uh, let the dead bury the dead. You come with me. We have work to do. All right, John. And that's the last time we see what we might call a funeral today mentioned in the scripture. Alright, now let's look at John chapter 19, verse 38. Not that there's anything wrong, by the way, with the funeral. I'll just provide closure. Plus, it also provides an excellent uh, way to witness to the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when people come to a funeral, they're usually a little bit concerned about uh, death, and they're at least thinking about death. And it gives you opportunity how to avoid the ultimate death, which of course is Hades. Uh, by simply faith alone in Christ alone. Now let me read you John, again in the 19th chapter, we'll start with verse 38, and we'll go to verse 39. It says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. There's our word, epitrepo. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. Uh, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. A little story about that. One day we had arrived at our home coming from church and pulled into the carport. And of course my daughter was, a, uh, she, I can't remember how old she was at that time, but she was standing on the floorboard and looking over. And uh, she said, Daddy, is there any, is there such thing as a secret disciple? And that day, the preacher happened to say, there's no such thing as a secret disciple. He was trying to motivate. And I said, well, honey, actually, yes, there is. There's more than one case. But uh, certainly there was in the case of Joseph of Arimathea, who came along with uh, a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a secret disciple, as it says here. And you remember Nicodemus. Three occasions we've studied Nicodemus. Uh, we studied the first of all where he was with Jesus and he didn't understand what Jesus was telling him about being born again. And he walked away. And then later on we find out he's a member of the Sanhedrin and he's fussing at the Sanhedrin. I'm, I'm trying to show you a growth pattern here of Nicodemus, by the way. And uh, he uh, is in, a member of the Sanhedrin and they're getting ready to set a plan to crucify Jesus. And uh, he criticizes the Sanhedrin. He says, you guys haven't even asked him in to give his side of the story. And so we can see him beginning to grow a little bit. And now we see the ultimate growth, who in as a secret disciple formally, he comes out of the closet, if you will, and uh, goes with his friend, to get the body of Jesus. Alright, now let's look at Acts 28 verse 16. 
And when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And you'll remember that's after his trip uh, again from the Holy Land over to Rome where he was there for roughly three years. And he had one of the members of the Praetorian Guard with him. And they uh, 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 took care of him. This one guard in particular stayed with him. And it, we know we studied how he and that guard would walk around Rome. And when my wife and I were in Rome, we thought about that as we walked around the city and uh, uh, kind of thought, thought, you know, this was where Paul walked with the Praetorian Guard. And everybody looked at Paul and looked at the Praetorian Guard and were very encouraged uh, because the Praetorian Guard was friendly with Paul. And the Praetorian Guard, as you'll remember, if you studied the doctrine of the Praetorian Guard, which is on the internet under Pastor Mary's study books, they determined who the Caesars were after a point in time, actually after Tiberius. All right, uh, so he was allowed to dwell by himself with the soldier. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll see how it's translated permitting in verse 3. We're going to read 1, 2, and 3, book of Hebrews. Again, that book, you know, was written in roughly 68 A.D. by some anonymous writer. Uh, and uh, uh, it was right before uh, the, the, the temple was destroyed. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it was a time where, of discipline for the Judeo-Christians who refu- refused to give up their worship in the temple. And so God's permitted Rome to destroy the temple and to chase all the Jews out of uh, the Holy Land. All right, let me read. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So again, he's urging them on to more detailed Bible study and to get away from the elementary uh, items, you might say, and some of which he lists there. All right, now let's go to the next phrase. Suffer not a woman to teach. Or we have gune, G-U-N-E. Then we have the verb didasko. Uh, gune, of course, is the one for woman in the Greek. Uh, it's not a very pleasing gune word as we think about the English of it. But uh, then we had this word didasco. And we have a doctrine of didasco on the internet where you can read. That's a verb that means to teach. It means to teach categorically generally. Uh, and it is well translated, a woman to teach. All right, gune is a noun. Declined as a dative singular, a dative of advantage if she follows the rules followed by the verb didasco, parsed as a present active infinitive. Infinitive says it's a goal, it's a purpose. The active voice says the subject produces the action of the verb. And, of course, it is, again, in in the present tense, meaning that it must be done over and over and over again. It's not a one-short deal like an aorist or a perfect tense. All right, guno appears more than a hundred times in the New Testament. Where in the KJV it is translated woman, women, wife, and wives. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, 
Reguno is found nine times. So I'm going to read beginning in the 22nd verse and we'll read through the 33rd verse. Book of Ephesians, again written by Paul, one of what we call the prison epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, uh, are of course, uh, are, are prison epistles and uh, they were written uh, while he was in prison at that time. There actually were four and I just listed three for you. But Ephesians is one of them. So here we go. We have the phrase, a woman to teach. We have gune didasco, and now we're going to look at how wives is used. 522, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that's, that's a, that's a big deal, as most men will tell you right off. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What was the church when Christ died for it? It wasn't pleasing. So there's a connotation there, regardless of whether she's pleasing at the time or not. Love her, even as Christ loved the church. Alright, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Because she is a completer of the man, as we will see. A man is incomplete without his right woman. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. And then we have verse 30, For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Most important verse uh, men are to understand, and women are to understand for that matter. Uh, when you get married, you join a, a new company. You're now part of board of directors of a brand new company. You and your husband or you and your wife are uh, there and one's president one's president and one's chairman of the board. Alright, this is a profound mystery, says verse 32, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. And men have to be worthy of respect and work at being that person who can be respected. Now let's look at this verb didasco, which means to teach. Didasco is the common Greek word for teaching. Women then must be careful to understand they are on thin ice when teaching. Clearly women are never to teach men. We find in scripture only one exception to the prohibition against women women teaching in the local church, and that is in Titus chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5, and I shall read. Now we're talking about Titus. We're back to our subject. Study of the book of Titus. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good 
Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God because, of course, conduct contrary to the word of God. All right, now let's see how our verse looks so far by way of an expanded translation after our exegesis. Verse 11, again, 1 Timothy, it is important that the woman learn in silence with proper respect and good manners, and she must not be allowed to teach. Now let's take a look at the phrase as it continues on the thought, nor to usurp authority over the man. All right, we have a phrase... over the, not to usurp authority over the man, which is ude, that is a negative, atheneo, and then we have aner. It is better translated or to have authority over a man or even to be placed in a position of authority over a man. Now, ude is a negative conjunctive adverb followed by the verb atheneo, parsed as a present active infinitive. Again, the infinitive shows purpose. The active voice says the subject produces the action of the verb. And the present tense says you got to do it over and over again. It's not a one-shot deal. All right. Ude is often translated simply O-R or N-O-R, nor, or it can be translated neither. Atheneo is a, what we call a hypox legomenon. It only appears here one time in Scripture. Uh, and it is, according to Zondervan, in his analytical Greek lexicon, means to act by one's self, to act by one's own power or authority, to execute with one's own hand, to have authority over or to dominate. So authentes uh, is the noun form. It is it actually was used by Josephus, one of the great historians, Jewish historians, uh, of a master over a slave, and it was used by Ptolemy, the great uh, Egyptian king who took over after Alexander the Great uh, of one being under the authority of another. So the prohibition to teach does not include the teaching of classes of women, girls, or children, but it does prohibit the woman from being a pastor teacher. A woman must not teach a mixed class of adults. Vincent has written of the expression usurp authority. He says, this is not a correct translation of the Greek word. It is rather to exercise dominion over. So in the sphere of doctrinal disputes or questions of interpretation where authoritative pronouncements are to be made, the woman is to keep silence. Now, aner uh, is an anarthrous noun declined as a genitive singular given the anarthrous instruction and the strict meaning of aner, attention is called to the quality of the man, a believer in a local assembly. So when we see aner, we know it's talking about a man, but usually a noble man. If you just wanted to talk about a man, you would use the word anthropos. But aner means women are not to, as it says, uh, according to design of us, to act by oneself or to act on one's own over a noble and honorable man. All right, but in but now we have a contrast because we have Allah. Allah is the strong of the strongest of the adversities. It means but in contrast, uh, duck can be a but as we've already seen in our exegesis, 
It's a softer contrast. This is a strong contrast. So, but most certainly. Then we have I'me, that's the to be verb, like our is, our are, our, our was, our be, to be. And then we have in, and then we have, uh, hesukia. Hesikua, because we have a rough breathing mark over the eta there, of hesikua, uh, or kia, actually. Uh, it's talking about an H sound. There is no H in the Greek. So to get an H sound in the Greek, you have a little rough breathing mark like that. And uh, I didn't show it because I don't have one. I don't have a font that shows that. But I could have put it in myself. But you can put it in in your, your unedited portion, which is over here on the, on the uh, organ. So Allah, Ami, and Hesekia is better translated, but is most certainly to be silent. All right, Allah is an adversative, as we mentioned. Ami is a to-be verb. And uh, then in, you have Hesekia serves as the object of the preposition. And I want to speak to Hesekia here, you will, uh, if you will. Hesekia is declined as a locative singular. And according to Moulton's analytical Greek lexicon revised, means rest, quiet, tranquil life. Silence or silent attention. Thus, she is to be in silence given the locative declension. Uh, and declensions, you know, are most important in determining meanings. And then the locative tells us that she is to be in silence. All right. Hesikua appears four times in the New Testament, where in the NIV it is translated quiet, settle down, or in quietness. Let's see how that is used elsewhere. NIV, Acts chapter 22, verse 2 and 3. Paul's speaking. He said, When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. He's speaking to a group of people, you know, outside Mark Anthony Barracks, as he had been in the temple. Uh, and it's translated, The more silence in the KJV. Then Paul said, all right, Acts 22, verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. All right, now the NIV, Second Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12, where you see this word translated settle down. So we hear that some among you are idle. Again, says Paul to the church at Thessalonica. They are not busy. He says they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. Alright, uh, now then, uh, Maria, the NIV of First uh, Timothy 2.11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. So let's see how our verse lacks or looks, excuse me, by way of an expanded translation. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It is important that the woman learn in silence with proper respect and good manners, and she must not be allowed to teach or to have authority over a man, but to serve in silence. All right, Weist. Uh, again, I first heard of Weist when I heard the... Colonel Thiem mentioned his name one time as uh, having the best literal translation of the New Testament 
and I used to call it woos, but I was working with someone in my neighborhood on some scripture, and he happened to be from uh, Seguin, and he said, well, being from Seguin, you don't say woos, you say weest. So uh, he says, that's the way it is in the German. So I stood corrected, if you will. All right. So let's say what Weist has to say in about 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 12. Uh, the prohibition to teach does not include the teaching of classes of women, girls, or children, but it does prohibit the woman from being a pastor teacher. A woman must not teach a mixed class of adults. Vincent has written of the expression usurp authority. This is not a correct translation as we earlier saw of the Greek word. It is rather to exercise dominion over in the sphere of doctrinal interpretations where authoritative pronouncements are made. The women are to keep, or is the woman, is to keep silent. Paul is still dealing with the context of women in the local assembly. The silence here has to do with maintaining quiet in the assembly and does not permit a woman to take an active part in the work of the church in her own sphere and under the limitations imposed upon her in the passage. Paul therefore is saying here that I do not permit a woman to be a teacher in the sense of one with the gift of pastor teacher. The term you search authority over in verse 12 is rather to exercise dominion over in the sphere of doctrinal disputes or questions of interpretation where authority pronouncements are to be made, the woman is to keep silence. Then he goes on to say, in the sphere of doctrinal disputes or questions of interpretation where authority pronouncements are to be made, the woman should be silent. All right, uh, now we go. He goes on, he goes on to say, uh, to keep silence, the reason for the above position. Why the reason? He says it's found in the original order of the creation and circumstances of the fall of man. So before we move to our next verse, I want to review some of what we learned last week. All right, women are to be considered as spiritual equals in Christ. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, the women united with the other disciples in prayer and full fellowship. All right, Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they received the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, just as did the men on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.17 and 18, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your women, uh, I'm sorry, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. This refers, of course, to after the rapture of the church. The next next eschatological event, of course, will be the rapture. It can happen before I uh, finish speaking. And uh, that's when the Lord himself shall descend from the heavens with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you don't have to worry about the rain. It will happen in such a way that we'll go and we'll meet those who died and went before us and they'll get their resurrection bodies first and then we'll get our resurrection bodies 
and we will be with the Lord. And that is when these things mentioned in Acts 2, 17 and 18 will take place. Alright, now a little more about women. Uh, we're going to get to a lot more about women as we, before we finish our study because Paul writes to, again, uh, Titus on the island of Crete about how to teach and treat the women on the island. So some women like Lydia, Priscilla, and Phoebe were outstanding as fellow workers with Paul and as women in whose home, homes, plural, churches met. Uh, for example, Romans 16.1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. And then we drop down to verse 3. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. And we have no record of how that happened or where that happened. But not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And every woman, now we're going to uh, chapter 11, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. It says, And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head is just, and is just as though her head were shaved. So at the end, that is one of those mystery verses that many people have attacked in different ways. I happen to believe it's a reference to uh, for the right man to have his hair shorter than, of course, his right woman. Uh, but uh, that uh, is subject to interpretation by a lot of people. But in my case, it gives my wife opportunity to wear her hair anywhere, any way she wants, given my hair head. I have no hair on my head. All right, uh, we're winding her down now, and I think this is a good place to stop. That is when we look at 1 Timothy 2.13, continuing our study of the of the woman's role in the local church. Now remember, in the local church, she has definite restrictions about what she can do and cannot do. But outside the local church, no restrictions whatsoever. And we studied that last week, didn't we? We went to Proverbs again and looked in the, uh, in that particular book. The thir- 31st chapter, Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 11, going all the way to the end of the, of the chapter. Uh, it tells the woman she can do just about whatever she wants to. She can be president of a corporation, can be a, 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 a businessman. Pardon the expression. <laughs> a businesswoman. All right, she can do anything that uh, she's capable of doing outside the local church. So that's why we had to separate the role of the woman in the local church. So with that said, now since we only have three minutes left and we want to be sure to give an invitation, since that's uh, important, uh, to uh, do in each and every service. And I try to put it on the Internet because we have, you know, numerous people out there who are listening to us. We have anywhere between 17,000 and 20,000 people uh, as far as the Internet is concerned. And then we have another large number on the podcast. So people are eager for the Word of God. So there may be somebody out there listening or even here who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and uh, is in need of salvation. And uh, with that said, I'd ask that your head is bowed and your eyes closed and you would pray that the Word of God would have full effect because the power is in the Word. Anything I say up here 
that is not going to convince anybody to do anything. But the Word of God certainly can. Then the Word of God says we're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came unto His own, Israel, but His own received Him not. But as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. And our old favorite, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ came unto His own not to, again, to condemn the world, but to provide a means of salvation. And it's all by grace. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. I'm going to pause for just a moment and let you have opportunity to do that. And then I'm going to have uh, provide our benediction. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and worship. Now, I would certainly ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in Your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. For it is in His name I pray. Amen.